the Jewish views on the UN's unanimous decision to pass a resolution on Israeli settlements, Scottish Jewish life as captured by photographer Judah Passau, and recognizing those members of the community who made it on to the prestigious New Year's Honours list. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The Israeli education minister has called for the annexation of parts of the West Bank. It's in response to the United Nations resolution, which was passed last week, that took Israel to task for continuing to build settlements there. Naftali Bennett, who is also head of the pro-settler Jewish Home Party, said this resolution will be thrown into the dustbin of history. The Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, called on lawmakers not to publicly discuss annexation, saying President Obama might yet do more against Israel on the Palestinian issue before he leaves office. Three Republican senators alluded to what they called the Obama administration's vendetta against the Jewish state as they introduced legislation to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's official capital and move the U.S. embassy there from Tel Aviv. It's backed by President-elect Donald Trump. Ted Cruz, Dean Heller and Marco Rubio unveiled the Jerusalem Embassy and Recognition Act, but critics warn that the move could further destabilize the Israel-Palestine two-state solution. Several Jewish people have been recognized in the New Year's honors. Johnny Benjamin, who's one of the UK's leading mental health campaigners, gets an MBE. Danny Stone, who is secretary of the All-Party Group Against Antisemitism, also gets an MBE. And an OBE goes to a female Haredi leader, Chaya Spitz. And there's an MBE for Nicola Weatherall, who is the school's network coordinator at UCL Centre for Holocaust Education. A record number of visitors walked through the gates of Auschwitz in 2016. Nearly two million people from hundreds of different countries visited the former Nazi concentration camp in Poland, where more than a million people died during the Second World War. A spokesman for the Auschwitz Memorial said the number of visitors is usually highest from Poland itself, followed by the United States and the UK, where the Holocaust Educational Trust organises trips to the former camp for thousands of schoolchildren. And finally, a Jewish man who helped crack the Enigma Code at Bletchley Park during the war has died at the age of 97. German-born Rolf Noskvith was a 22-year-old Cambridge undergraduate studying mathematics in 1939 when he was accepted to work at the secret code-breaking centre alongside brilliant minds such as Alan Turing. His knowledge of German helped him guess the meaning of enemy messages and then run them through a decoding machine. Well, that's the news, so now it's over to Andrew for the sport. Thanks, Viv. With the Maccabi Football League resuming on Sunday after its two-week break... FC Team B have become the latest football club forced to fold and therefore withdraw from the league. The club's Mitch Young said, I would like to apologise to all the managers, players and of course David Wolfe and the MGBSFL committee for having to do this. But we had no other option and look forward to the remainder of the season. Hupper El Besheva have secured the first part of a potential Israeli League and Cup treble after they beat Ironi Kiat Shmona. 4-1 in the final of the Toto Cup. Former Chelsea striker Ben Saha scored two goals in two first-half minutes as the Israeli champions ran out comfortable winners in Netanya. And finally, 
former world boxing champion and ordained orthodox rabbi Yuri Foreman will be looking to regain his junior middleweight title when he takes on Erislandi Lara in Miami next month. The Belarusian-born 36-year-old claimed the WBA Super Welterweight title in 2009, and speaking ahead of the 13th of January fight, he said, I'm thrilled to be fighting for the world title. I'm really looking forward to showcasing my skills and talent and becoming a two-time world champion. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. And before you go anywhere, you're going to stick with us for this week's pay-per-view. Welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Happy New Year to you and yours. Let's start off this first edition for 2017, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. As I say, Andrew Sherwood, sports editor and community editor, stays with us to start looking through the paper, as does features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Let's start off with the front page and the headline reads, Theresa May was blindsided over anti-Israel vote. Basically, the story is that the comment that Theresa May was blindsided over the anti-Israel vote, which recently took place at the UN, came from Mike Freer, who's writing for this week's Jewish News. Mike Freer, of course, the MP for Finchley and Golders Green. He said... I doubt Theresa May will have been impressed at being blindsided by our FCO, which has a patchy record at the UN regarding Israel. This too, I suspect, may now change. He's basically insinuating that the UN resolution vote which went ahead. This, of course, was the one at the end of last year, the UN resolution which urged Israel to stop creating what they call illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Yes, exactly. The Security Council motion basically described the West Bank and East Jerusalem as occupied and the settlements as having no legal validity. So that's what we're referring to here. Mike Freer has basically suggested that Theresa May perhaps didn't know which way the Foreign Office was going to throw its support over this UN resolution. We don't know actually how involved Downing Street was in the UN resolution, just to make that clear. But certainly Mike Freer's comments suggest that the, the Prime Minister may have taken a different view, shall we say. It's always interesting when anything ever comes up about the UN and its attitude towards Israel. It's obviously very easy for us as British Jews to turn around and to say that the UN are being unfair towards Israel. But isn't the truth of it that when anything is to do with Israel, whether it is media coverage, whether it be UN resolutions, whether it be comments from people in the limelight, isn't it just part of our unique heritage that says that we get very tetchy and almost very sensitive and hypersensitive about matters that, frankly, if it was any other country or any other individuals, we probably wouldn't be so unhappy about it. Yeah, I mean, you're saying as well that we have a kind of vested interest, obviously, because it's about Israel, we're Jewish people, obviously, we have an interest in Israel. So that's the way we view it. Interestingly, as well, Mike Fear also writes in the Jewish News in a column, he also suggests that the latest resolution could end up doing Israel a favour by creating circumstances which might cause the UN to adopt a more balanced approach. So he's also taking that view on it as well. But going back to what you say, we obviously we view it differently because, you know, we care about Israel. 
And that is why whenever we supposedly come under attack or people say things about us, be it the UN or whoever else, then we do take it to heart. But I think, you know, we should also make the point that, I mean, we need to look at the facts. The UN has issued more resolutions on Israel than any other country in recent years. And it's ignored the behavior of other countries like Russia, China, Zimbabwe, North Korea. What about all the resolutions for those countries? So I think we we are perhaps a bit more sensitive about UN resolutions regarding Israel, but perhaps there is some justice in that. Well, we're going to find out more about that later in this programme. But now let's move on to the next story on the front page. The soldier who has divided Israel. This has actually been quite a big story to come out of this week. It's been a very big story and it's really come to the fore because obviously Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has called for the soldier, Sergeant Elo Azaria. He was convicted of the manslaughter of a wounded Palestinian terrorist and Netanyahu has called on him to receive a pardon. Well, he's called on him to receive a pardon, but it's not very clear why. There are some who says that it's because that the person who the soldier did kill posed a threat. There are others who say that as he lay wounded on the floor, what possible threat could he have caused? And hence, obviously, the sentence of manslaughter has been imposed upon him. So... It's a bit of a tricky one, really, isn't it? That's precisely why he has divided Israel, it's, is because yeah. we don't actually know what really happened, and it's quite difficult to actually know whether or not he was right or wrong to do what he did. Yeah, and obviously us sitting here, you know, we're not a court. We can't really say which way, you know, the verdict should have gone. I think it is worth mentioning, however, 67% of Israelis, according to Channel 2 News in Israel, are in support of him getting a pardon. So that suggests the nation are very much swayed towards him I think it swayed towards him yeah. and the IDF as well, what they yes. do kind of thing. That's why it resonates with the Israeli public, 67%, as you say. They, you know, they view it as for getting behind the IDF and for protecting Israel. It's obviously a very difficult situation out there. A young Israeli soldier is faced with a Palestinian terrorist, you know, and how to sort of deal with them in the aftermath. I'd imagine in those kind of very tense circumstances when they're right there and trying to deal with the situation, you know, what would you do? It's... Absolutely. It is a heat of the moment sort of thing. Let's move on. Page three now of the Jewish news for this week. The headline reads, Rabbi's Grave Outrage. This is senior rabbi from the reform movement, Rabbi Laura Jenner Klausner. And what's the problem? Well, she's been speaking following her late father stone setting, and she's claimed that she was sidelined during the, during the service at Wilston Cemetery because she was a woman. Well, she questioned whether it was because she was a woman or, as she put it, this specific woman. I think referring to her position, obviously, as the senior rabbi in the reform movement who happens to be a woman. And so, so what have the US said in response to that? Well, the US, uh, we got a quote from a US spokesman and he said, you know, at standard stone setting at US level, the officiating rabbi, he reads out the inscription as part of the service. So as far as he's concerned, and I think what we all agree, in a united service, in a united synagogue service, that is, the correct, that is how it is carried out a service. I was going to say, I mean, if I think too sadly, I have had the need to go to various stone settings and lavoyas in the United Synagogue over the years. And it just is the way it is. And I personally, and I'm speaking as a reformed Jew myself, don't believe that it would be anything to do with being sidelined based on her position 
because I would imagine that if it was the case, then it would go further than that to the extent that the US might not even be that happy that she was actually present in the first place, which I don't believe for a second they would do. And I don't think any of us would. But the point is that if you're going to start sort of throwing accusations by saying that it's because of position, it's because of the sex of me and all of that malarkey, it kind of almost adds fuel to already a very delicate fire, doesn't it? It's not, it's not the right way to approach it. No, I mean, the terminology she actually used, she, she claimed well, she's hit out at unnecessarily harsh restrictions placed on my participation. Well, let us hope that it is not the case and that as a result of it, what we were saying before about sensitivity being a trait that runs through all of us as Jews, let us hope that maybe it was something to do with that. And now the next story is that of a toddler aged two who's been injured in a robbery. This is on page six of the Jewish News for this week. Yeah, this is really horrific, actually. And the incident was caught on CCTV the video is actually on the Jewish News website as well. And basically, a mother of four said she thought her time had come. She thought she was going to be killed. This man came running up behind her and her two-year-old daughter, who was in the pram, and basically grabbed her. He was obviously trying to get hold of her handbag. And in his efforts to get hold of that, he actually tipped the pram over. And you can actually see the young child down on the ground. It's, it's really sad state of affairs isn't it broken britain and all of that obviously uh, you know i don't mean it was anything not, not an anti-semitic attack or anything I like was that going i to think, ask is there any evidence yeah, no, of it being I, anti-semitic or was this just random i think she was just targeted and uh, unfortunately you know another victim of mugging on our streets but what's sad is obviously this toddler's been suffering nightmares she's got a bruised head and it's just it's just a sad state of affairs and quite shocking actually as well It's strange, though, that it's only highlighted because this lady and her daughter obviously happen to be of the community. But if we really stop and think about the number of muggings and robberies that go on every single day here in this great capital of ours, and it's taken something like this, a member of our own community, to really highlight just how shocking it is practically on a daily basis. Mm. I'd like to think that this isn't happening every day. I'd like to think that it's not such a repeated occurrence, but certainly comments underneath the story suggest this happens a lot in Hackney, particularly. Well, let us hope that in due course that they are both as okay as can be. That unfortunately is where we have to leave it for the pay-per-view for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Towards the end of last year, as you've already been hearing, the United Nations unanimously passed a resolution urging an end to what they call illegal Israeli settlements. The motion was successfully based on America refusing to veto it and was also backed by the UK. The move has sparked mixed responses from across the global Jewish community as well as supporters of Israel. To discuss this further and understand exactly what it could mean for Israel now, I've been speaking to Paul Charney from the Zionist Federation and Hannah Weisfeld from Yechad. I started by asking Paul to tell us how his organisation has reacted to this resolution. The resolution by the UN we see as an anti-Israel, anti-current Israeli establishment resolution. We are less surprised by a resolution of being anti-Israel coming from the UN 
as opposed to being surprised by the, the fact that the US blindsided cowardly last minute before Obama leaves office decides to stab Israel in the back together with the UK supporting such a favorable resolution against Israel. Okay, and Hannah, I have to ask you, obviously, how does Yechad view the resolution? Well, uh, we re- uh, view this resolution as being anti the settlements. As far as we're concerned, there's nothing in this resolution that is anti-Israel, and I'd be interested maybe in a minute if we have time for the discussion to hear from Paul which part of the resolution he sees as actually being anti-Israel. I would say the fact that it highlights the need in an equal part to, end, to ending sort of continued construction settlements, to end terrorism and incitement, I would say is a positive thing. The fact that it recognises Israel's right to exist and the importance of a agreed, negotiated resolution to the conflict, I would say is a good thing. Okay, well, Paul, you heard Hannah there. She did say that she wants to know what exactly about the resolution do you find anti-Israel? The fact that it was commended by Fatah, Hamas and Islamic Jihad means they see it as a political win. The specifics of the resolution itself are less, I would say, less dramatic than the the significance of the resolution being passed itself. The U.S. have rejected such resolutions against Israel for decades and have vetoed such resolutions. We know that Obama has had a difficult position with Israel and with the settlements for many years, specifically against the Netanyahu government. And we see this as a personal attack by him. It's his opportunity to, to make his point clear against Netanyahu. We know that they were very instrumental in keeping this quiet and pretty much blindsiding Israel the last minute with this resolution. If it was so pro-Israel, then the manner by which this resolution was passed would not have been done in this way. There seems to be an awful lot of confusion in terms of where boundaries for Israel actually lie. So with locations such as the Golan Heights, the West Bank and all of that, that area seems to be a subject of much contention because people don't necessarily know where the boundaries is. I'd be interested to sort of see if either of you sort of know factually what exactly is the limit as to where Israel has a legal right and who sets that legal right for where they can build. Hannah, perhaps let's get you on this. Yeah, well, the International Court of Justice ruling is that every piece of territory that was captured after 1967 that hasn't been negotiated on is considered occupied. And therefore, the international community recognises Israel's legal borders as being what we either know as the 1949 Armistice Lines or the 1967 Green Line. And interestingly, what this resolution says, which I think is a positive thing, is that while it doesn't recognise changes that Israel makes pre negotiations to land over that over those boundaries it does recognize that there will be negotiations and therefore there will be land swaps so you know there's nothing in this resolution that predetermines the borders of israel so if it's occupied territory paul then surely that means that israel is wrong to build there well i mean it was occupied by jordan pre-67 it's apparently occupied by israel post-67 the legality of the borders of that area are not 100 percent clear there is Many legal arguments against that. So if they're not 100% clear, how can he necessarily justify Israel's actions as they are? So, well, according to Israel, they are legally, they've been legally taken through defensive wars and through management of the area itself. So Israel sees it as legal territory. But Israel also recognizes that at a point where a peace agreement will be made, there will be a territorial agreement, which includes some land swaps. So... 
and at the moment we like to rather leave it as undefined and rather than having another major issue of a potential future peace agreement taken out of the hands of Israel with having now no say of where those borders may or may not be, which have a huge defensive issue against it. What Israel wants to do is make all big six, all the big six major issues clear, part of a peace agreement with the entire Arab nations, with the Palestinians, rather than them internationalizing each point of the agreement and taking that out of the hands of Israel to even even negotiate. Paul, I, I just think we need to be clear about a couple of pieces of factual information. First of all, Israel doesn't recognize the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights as legal territory. It, it's The government calls it disputed and the High Court has called it a belligerent occupation. So, you know, even the government of Israel doesn't see what's over the 1967 borders as the same as what is inside Israel. The other thing I would say is that what you've just said is exactly what is in this document. And I've actually got it in front of me. It says nothing about predetermining the borders. It says quite the opposite, which is that, you know, in terms of changes to the borders, it says other than those agreed by parties through negotiations. And what it goes on to say is that actually it calls for both sides to urgently negotiate to come to an agreement. It doesn't say anything about what the borders should be. You know, I would just challenge this notion that Obama is sort of giving BBA a, you know, final rap on the knuckles because... I don't know what your interpretation is, but I, I find it interesting that Obama is the US president that has not implemented the veto less than any other US president in uh, Israel's history. So Reagan, I think, allowed 21 critical resolutions of Israel to go through the United Nations Security Council. George Bush, Bush Sr. allowed nine. George Bush Jr. allowed six. And actually, Obama has allowed one. I think, I can't remember who it is, but I think the only other president that's allowed remotely anything close was two. And so this is a man who's just pledged $38 billion to Israel in an aid package in September last year. It's the biggest aid package that Israel's, that America has ever pledged to any other country. And he's never used his veto till, you know, last week. And, I, you know, I find the painting of Obama as this sort of monster that is trying to uh, do one over Israel and Bibi Netanyahu so far from the reality of where their relationship is that I just think that you have to look at it differently and think about, well, why is the international community, the UK, the USA, so frustrated with Israel at this point that it feels that this resolution would be helpful? Isn't it a fair comment to say, though, that because America is seen as Israel's biggest ally, is it not understandable that it's a very bitter pill to try and swallow when we see, as we being as global Jews, see the president of the US backing off from what could be a pretty fundamental resolution to the state of Israel? What I'm failing to understand here is what's so fundamental about it. The the roadmap in 2003 called on Israel to cease all building over the Green Line, including that that uh, is required, you know, according to Israel, for natural growth. It also demanded, which this resolution doesn't even mention, the dismantling of outposts. So we've already had this before in 2003. The UN and the US were both party to that roadmap. This is not a change of policy for any country. The US, the UK, uh, the United Nations, of course, all deem settlements illegal. That is the stated policy of all those of both those governments and the United Nations. So there's nothing actually in this resolution that changes the game at all. All it is doing, there's only two, there's four things this resolution calls for. And I went through it with a fine tooth comb. It calls for Israel to cease building, doesn't ask Israel to dismantle. It asks for immediate steps to prevent all acts of violence against civilians, including acts of terror. It calls on both parties to act on the basis of international law and prevent to abstain from provocative actions. And it calls on all parties to continue 
collective efforts to launch credible negotiations. Okay, well, is that not reasonable then, Paul? No, it's a, it's a total misportrayal of what's, what's I've got it in here. front of me. I think you've me. missed the point entirely. I think what you're looking, you've missed the wood for the trees here. You can read the resolution as many times as you like, but Alan Dershowitz himself, who's a, not a fan of settlements and disagrees with them, says this has been a betrayal by Obama. The timing of which he does this just before he leaves office, the manner of which he's done this, it's calling for other countries to treat Israeli areas within those those territories in Judea and Samaria as different. Treat them differently. The to the, Israeli to the, let me finish my speech. I allowed you to speak. I'd like you to okay. keep quiet. Let me finish my let me finish my point. It's it's calling for them to be treated differently. It's calling for the rest of those areas which are at the moment, even if we call it disputed areas, which we know which areas will be part of, of Israel during a, a peace. We will know which areas will be part of a peace agreement within Israel. You're calling those areas as disputed. You're calling areas of Jerusalem up to the up to the Wailing Mall, up to our, our, our Kotel as to being uh, disputed. The manner of which this has been done has been seen nothing, nothing other than a betrayal to the Jewish people. That's the mood of the Jewish community here. That's the mood of the Israeli community. When Kerry had his speech, I have to tell you the rest of Israel, most of the stations didn't even show the speech. We had Theresa May who came out and said, you've missed the point entirely herself. We have a protest rally on Sunday against the foreign common, uh, uh, against the, the the UK foreign Commonwealth Office and against the against this UN resolution. Israel feels like this bashing, this stick, this whip, this whipping stick against Israel by the UN has been allowed by the US. And we won't allow it to stand. Right. I have to unfortunately say that regressively, seriously regressively, we are running short on time. So I utterly don't want to have to cut this conversation as short as we are going to have to. But I would ask both of you just to maybe summarize what you would like to see moving forward, Israel achieve and the outcome from all of this. Hannah, let's start with you. Well, I think it's very, what is a very positive outcome from this is that actually the need for international negotiations has been put right up back on the international agenda. They had fallen right off it. And it is a good thing that we have a resolution at the United Nations calling for Israel and the Palestinian Authority to sit down and negotiate and come to a comprehensive peace agreement. And that is a positive thing. And I think it is a great shame that people think that it is not a good thing that we have an international body that wants to support that happening. Okay, thank you very much. And Paul, what would you say? I would like to say a proper peace negotiation rather than unilateral steps by the Palestinians who are happy to ask for Israel to relinquish land and relinquish their part of the negotiation rather than them. How about them recognizing Israel as a Jewish state? How about them relinquish, stopping violence? How about them sitting down to, to, to a peace table and accepting where we've had peace agreements like Ehud Olmert and, and Barak before and coming to the table in agreement? What we don't want to see are unilateral steps with them agreeing and, and forcing positions prior to a negotiation and essentially taking us further away from any peace deal. Well, there you are. Subject for much contention, Paul Charney from the Zionist Federation and Hannah Weisfeld from Yechad talking to me there about the UN's recent resolution urging an end to what they call illegal Israeli settlements. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Kate will be joined by actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and journalist Jenny Fraser. They'll be discussing genocides and in particular asking why, when it comes to genocides, is the Holocaust the one that's remembered? 
Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to mental health campaigner Johnny Benjamin, who's just been awarded an MBE on the New Year's Honours list. But first, Tony Honigberg isn't the community's only photographer. An exhibition on at the Jewish Museum in London at the moment, entitled Scots Jews, Photographs by Judah Passau, is, well, pretty much what it says on the tin. It captures and explores Scotland's Jewish community across the country. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to photographer Judah Passau to find out more. Kate started by asking Judah to tell us how he would best describe his style of photography. I'm a photojournalist, and what I do is take pictures that explore ideas. Photojournalism has been described as the photography of ideas, and that's what I do. I explore a large issue using photography as the medium for exploring that issue. Give me an example of some of the types of issues that that either you feel need exploring or that you've enjoyed exploring. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And what ideas were there? Because that's that's a war, that's an ongoing conflict over, Mm -hmm. over many decades. But it's a conflict that's constructed out of many issues, many, many subsets of issues. And all of these issues contribute to the complexity of the conflict, and it's that complexity which I use my photography to try to develop an understanding of for myself and for the people who look at the photograph. And these are mainly people? People, situations, yeah. Right. So moving on to the Jewish Museum, what, what took you to Scotland? What was your interest over there? I had been working on a two-year project called No Place Like Home, which looked at the issue of identity in Britain's Jewish community, how British Jews identify themselves both as citizens of the United Kingdom and as Jews. How do they express this dual identity? And at the opening of the exhibition for, for that project, I was approached by a Glaswegian who asked me if I would be interested in applying the same idea, producing a portrait of a community, applying that same idea only to Scotland. In other words, spend some time producing a portrait of what it means to be Scottish and Jewish at the beginning of the 21st century. That was the origin of the project. And what did you find out? What, was it, what, was it, what did you discover about Scottish Jews that differentiated them from the rest of the Jews around the UK? Well, the Scottish community, is, the Scottish Jewish community is a very small one. It's about 7,000, give or take. And its small size allows it to develop almost a, a, a family size bubble around itself. A, 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 they, they all feel very protective of themselves. And that's coupled with, that's, that's the Jewish dimension, the, the Jewish family dimension. That is coupled with something very, very Scottish, which is a fierce national pride in Scottish culture. And you add those two ingredients into the pot and stir, and you get this wonderful, wonderful result called Scottish Judaism. Some thousands doesn't sound a lot of Jews. And it's lovely that you describe what you, what you discovered as 
fiercely protective and, and nationalistic in the in the good sense, rather than insular and a bit clannish. Oh, yeah, it's uh, you know it's important to understand that the 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 notion of nationalism doesn't refer to that kind of you know nineteenth century geopolitical sense of nationalism. It's not that kind of nationalism that leads to false patriotism and aggression. It's it's none of that. It's it's nationalism in the sense of real pride in the culture, real pride in the history of the place, and real pride in their contribution to the history of the place. Give us some examples of the types of people you met and types of photographs you took which you feel identified this feeling about Scottish Jews. The range of people that I met was so wide. I met a shepherdess up in the Scottish Highlands in, in Loch Gilped. I met a helicopter pilot working the North Sea oil rigs in Aberdeen. I met a landscape photographer out on the Isle of Skye. And these were all Jews? Because you imagine that they mainly mm. would gather around the sort of Edinburgh, Glasgow, the big, the big cities where you've got the shuls and the shops and the mikvahs. That, the... that was one of the wonderful discoveries of this project in, in, in the sense that Scottish Jewry, real the, the the Scottish Jewish community, is a national community. It's not a community limited to two geographical locations, Edinburgh and Glasgow. They're, you know, really account for about half of the total of Scotland's Jewish population. Edinburgh has about 700 and Glasgow has about 3,500. But that means that you've got about 3,000 Jews scattered elsewhere across the country. Because that's a lot of space. I mean, you've got the Hebrides and you've got all the little tiny islands. Yeah, and the Shetlands. The Shetlands. Yeah, I, I, and you I, found Jews there? A taxi driver. Wow. How did you even find these people? There's an organization called SCOJEC, that's the Scottish Council of Jewish Communities, who about a year before I started my project received a grant to do a Jewish census of Scotland to actually go out and count in Scotland. So as a result, they had a database of all the email addresses, all the mobile phone numbers and landline numbers of all of the Jews in Scotland. And people didn't mind you phoning up, excuse me, you were Jew, can I come and take your picture? Well, the, you know, my 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 pitch to people wasn't quite as blunt as that. <laughs> but I, I rang people up or emailed them and I explained to them what the project was about. I explained to them, I introduced myself and I explained to them what the project was about. And nobody ever said no. Everybody got it immediately. They understood that what I was trying to do was put together a historical document, something not for us, but for posterity. Was there a time frame that you had to put this collection together? Did you set uh, yourself a... Yes, I, I, I had a year and a half to work on the, on the project. The, the shooting phase was a year and a half. The post-production editing phase was another six months. So it was two years of work before the exhibition and the book came out. Yeah, You go up to the, this person sort of driving around in, in, in the Shetlands, and do you sort of latch on to his or her daily life and mm -hmm. take pictures as they're going along? Absolutely. What sort of camera do you use for those listening who may be interested? I use two types of cameras. I use a Leica M9 and um, a Nikon D800. And the exhibition is running, is still on? Yes, it's on until February, I believe. And do you have to get tickets or can anyone just pop along? There's an admission fee to the, to the museum, yes. 
If anybody wants to find out a little bit more about the museum, how to get there and plan their journey, how do they do that? I'd suggest they visit the museum's website, which is jewishmuseum.org.uk. And about yourself, Judah. How do we find out more about you? You can find out some more about me by looking at my website, which is judapassau.com. Photographer Judah Passau talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about his exhibition, which is on at the Jewish Museum at the moment until the 12th of February. It's entitled Scots Jews, Photographs by Judah Passau. And for more information, then you can always go to the Jewish Museum's website, as Judah has just said, which is jewishmuseum, or one word, dot org, dot uk. In just a moment, we'll be this week's Schmooze. Don't forget, you can watch the live stream of the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read those comments out as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviewsuk. Now. A new year means a new year's honours list, and our community fared quite well considering. Amongst the recipients, Danny Stone, Secretary of All-Party Group Against Antisemitism, is to receive an MBE. Female Haredi leader Chaya Spitz, an OBE. And our next guest, Johnny Benjamin, has been awarded an NBE for services to mental health. Johnny is known as the man who started the campaign Find Mike in a bid to track down the man who ultimately stopped him from jumping off of Waterloo Bridge. And he's been tirelessly campaigning to change attitudes towards mental health ever since. Community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Johnny and she started by asking him to tell us what has happened since that near fatal night all those years ago. Six years after I first met Neil on the bridge, I launched this campaign to find him. So this was January 2014, and it just went viral. I mean, it was just unbelievable. We Just the response was just more than ever, ever imagined. And we found him two weeks into the campaign. He came forwards, and we were reunited. And, and ever since then, been, we've been... You've been together ever since? Yeah, I've been together ever since, and we've been doing lots of work together going into places like schools and, and prisons and hospitals and businesses to to talk about mental health and to, to raise awareness and to get other people talking. You know, there's still a massive taboo, there's still a big stigma attached to mental illness and we're desperate to try and to try and break that down, and just get rid of that that stigma really attached to mental health and get people talking about it. That's that's what we're trying to do. Right. And your particular initiative, which I think is called Think Well is designed to do just that, is it? Particularly in secondary schools, I understand? Yeah, yeah that's my main focus, to be honest, is, is secondary schools. We know that 75% of all mental illness begins in adolescence, so it's vital that we get into schools and, and begin from an early age. I know that if someone would have come into my school, I went to JFS, if someone would have come into JFS and just, just talked about mental health, I just know it would have made a massive difference. So that's what we're trying to do now is we're going into secondary schools around the country and trying to educate young people, give them the tools they need to ask for help if they're struggling. Me, I, I personally want mental health kind of 
embedded into the school curriculum in the same way that physical health is, was, is on the school curriculum. I was very struck by that remark of yours, that, that it doesn't make any sense why mental no. health education isn't compulsory on the curriculum, and yet physical <laughs> education is. It seems blindingly yeah. obvious, doesn't it? Yeah, especially when you think, as I said, you know, 75% of, of all mental health issues begin in, in that during that age, during that time in secondary school. It just, for me, it just doesn't make sense why it's, it's not in schools already. I just, I don't understand it really. Are you going to have to go through, I don't know, sort of channels like the Department for Education in order to get yeah. it onto the curriculum? Yeah, absolutely. And I have had meetings, I've, I've had meetings with various MPs and I've done discussions in the House of Parliament about mental health in schools and mental health in general, and particularly focusing actually around suicide prevention, because that's another big area that we need to tackle. And, and suicide is now the biggest killer of, of young people in this country under 35. So it, you know, it's, it's something, yeah, it's, it's, it's something we really urgently need to, need to tackle. So I have had meetings and I hope to have more because I really want to push this. Particularly this year, hoping to do a campaign around mental health in school. So that's something that, that will, yeah, hopefully follow on in a few months' time. Because for me, it's, a, it's an absolute priority. You know, we know that young people more than ever before are, are struggling with their mental health. More young people than ever before are going to hospital with things like eating disorders, anxiety, self-harm and, and suicide attempts. So we, we desperately need to address this. It's becoming a crisis, to be honest. Why, do you, think, why do you think there is this rise in mm. mental health problems amongst young people? And is it mostly amongst young men or is it mm. spread across both genders? No, it's, it's across both genders to be honest and I think there's just more pressure on young people than ever before with things like exams and then employment after that you know after they finish school or university it's much harder to get a job these days and then obviously there's things like social media as well this is having a massive impact social media you know we've seen a number of suicides in in young people that have been bullied online there's a lot of online bullying taking place ah. and you know I was I went to Lamud during the the end of December to do a, a workshop there with young people and I was shocked by what these young people were telling me about how social media affects their lives and the amount of stress and the amount of anxiety and depression that it causes them because maybe they don't have enough friends on Facebook, maybe they haven't been invited to this event on Facebook or haven't been included in that on, on Instagram. You know, it really, we don't realise the impact that social media is having on young people and we really need to start addressing it. Because indeed, indeed. Tell me, I noticed that you're going to run next year's London Marathon. Now, presumably you're running that in order to raise money. How much do you hope to raise and what are you going to do with what funds you do manage to raise? It's actually myself and Neil, the, the stranger on the bridge, we're running together the London Marathon and we're hoping to raise £100,000, which is quite a high target, but we're, that's, you know, we're, we're aiming high and we're raising it for Heads Together, which is the charity that Prince William and Prince Harry and, and Duchess of Cambridge set up. And it's the coalition of different mental health charities such as Mind and Young Mind. And we're hoping to yeah, raise awareness, but also obviously raise a lot of funds for it. And those funds will then go to different projects, one of them being a crisis text line we don't have in this country. So particularly for young people, you know, they can text when they're, when they're in a crisis. At the moment, that, they can't. That's a so brilliant that's idea. The money will go to. Can we wish you the very best of luck with all your efforts yeah, in the thank future? You. And thank, thank you, you very much for speaking to us. Thank oh, you. Thank you. 
Johnny Benjamin talking to community reporter Diana Toman there about receiving an MBE in the New Year's Honours list. Mazel tov to him and all the recipients. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Kate Fulton and me today is actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and journalist Jenny Fraser. The subject today is based on an item we heard in the news with Viv a little earlier on. That was that 2016 saw a record number of visitors go to Auschwitz. A total of nearly two million people walked through the infamous gates to learn about its dark and treacherous past. The question is, why is it, when it comes to historic genocides, is the Holocaust the first one that most people think of, especially when the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust recognises other acts of genocide throughout history. Tony, let's start with you. Are you aware of any other genocides other than the Holocaust? And if not, why do you think that is? The the only other one that I can think of is the Rwandan genocide. There are others, but I can't think directly of those. Why can I only think of that one? Probably because it had a lot more publicity than anything else other than the Holocaust that we're talking about, than the Second World War Holocaust. And the others perhaps haven't had as much publicity as as the Rwandan one. Well, it certainly occurs to me that there is one that everybody knows about, and it's interesting, this one. It's the Inquisition in Spain. Ah, yes, and so long ago. Yeah, but it's also also to do with Jews. It's interesting. Jenny, what's your view on this? Well, I think, first of all, that the word genocide was coined by a Jew to describe what had happened in the Holocaust. It was a word that was not in use before the Second World War. I think that we should all rightly be aware of the the terrible death tolls that are going on throughout the world today and the the most egregious example of which is what's been happening in Syria. If that's not genocide, I don't know what is. And now, of course, there was the other famous one, Shevanitsa. That's correct. I, I, I think that as Jews, we are almost naturally going to gravitate to what happened to our peoples first. And it was the the most appalling example of an intent to wipe out an entire people. But of course we should take note and we should learn from what happened in the Second World War to apply that to trying to resist the death toll elsewhere. Yes, because you mentioned Syria, and Syria is is an appalling thing. It's interesting to note, of course, that many people forget that although there were six million Jews killed in the Holocaust, there were 10 million people killed. And the other five million were not Jewish. And many of those five million were Germans. Kate, what's your view? We're coming up to Holocaust Memorial Day in a few weeks. And I always find there, are, there is quite, a, lot, a, quite a, a number of other genocides mentioned. I mean, clearly the Holocaust itself was particularly appalling. And we as Jews will be the ones who will focus on that. Because if we don't, nobody else will. Just going back to the, to the numbers that we stated, one of the reasons that there has been a big rise in people visiting Auschwitz is because there has been a big push recently to get them to Auschwitz as the survivors are going. And as, as there is more and more a push to get them to leave their testimony, to record and to film, I mean, there's been all sorts of projects recently. 
I think it has encouraged people who are taken round by Survivor to go. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that the numbers are up. It's not that we're ignoring other genocides or, or putting them in any less of a importance. Syria's taking up masses of news, as it should. I don't think there's... I'm not seeing such an imbalance. Maybe there's, there's something in the fact that a number of the people, a number of those millions of people who went this past year to Auschwitz, it's interesting that a lot of them are not Jewish. And maybe it's because that's a perfect example and a perfect example to teach other people not to ignore other Holocaust. Do you understand what I mean? It's now, is it not now on the uh, school agenda? It's on the curriculum and there are various foundations and money set aside to send children from each, from every school. I can't remember the ages. But, but it it's is not just from the a UK, grant it's given from Europe as well. That's isn't correct. It? I'm so, talking about the UK. So that school. would actually boost yeah. the numbers up significantly. So that's another reason why pe- when people have been, school children have been to Auschwitz, when they come back, the teacher should say to them, Well, you saw how appalling that was. There are still such things going on in the world today. Do they do that? Yes, I believe they do. I think the one point I would like to make is that when people are trying to learn about other 20th century genocides, there's not that much to see. And the the thing about Auschwitz and some of the other concentration camps where it is still possible to go and have a look at the, the remnants of what the Nazis attempted to do, I don't think that there is anything comparable in Rwanda, in Srebrenica, And even if we want to go as far back as the Armenian genocide, you have to have something to show people. And very sadly, very unfortunately, we have what there is to show. And in fact, Auschwitz isn't the only one. There are any number of concentration camps. It's genocide in a different sort of way, isn't it? Because the, the Rwandans weren't rounded up and put into concentration camps. They were rounded up and killed. They weren't, they weren't actually mm, taken off anywhere. And the Second World War, as we know, people were rounded up and then shifted from place to place and then got to the concentration camps and then killed en masse there. I think that's the difference. Well, that was so, done, Jenny said, there, that was done in what was then called Yugoslavia between Serbia mm. and Croatia. And Croatia. Yes. There are places in that part of Eastern Europe to go and see exactly where it was that all these people were murdered. Yeah, they were murdered, um, like, exactly like that, but they weren't put into a concentration camp as such. As, well, as, they, were, as, they were pulled together. Yeah, it, and then murdered en masse. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, I don't know whether that makes a difference or not. Well, I think it does. I, th- I think I agree with Jenny. I mean, I know that people who have been to Cambodia and seen what happened with Pol Pot and seen the horrific way that people were murdered. I mean, not that you want to go to some kind of awful torture mm. chamber, but if the history is to come alive as a talking point and you're particularly going to send children and you're going to send young people, you have to create something that they could... That, that not not physical, a theatre of death, physical, exactly, which is, would be horrific. It's not what I mean. Mm. But it is a place where you can see and you can explain. And in modern history, other things are being discussed. I mean, I think this whole... Everything that's happened in Syria will be part of them, what, what children are studying in the modern mm-hmm. history. Yes, yeah. and you're absolutely right. Of course, one of the most heartbreaking parts of the Auschwitz is going into what were the gas chambers mm. and seeing them and seeing the bunks on which people lay before being taken into into the and gas see, chambers. And seeing all the collection of the suitcases and shoes and yes. glasses and clothes. And, 
I think also, for me, one of the most horrific things is the absolute, the, the unbelievable way, the factories of death, that it's all laid out. You've got ledgers and you've mm. got these books and incredibly precise details kept. It's very Germanic. It, it, very <laughs> Germanic. But it, it makes it into a business. Having been there, I've, I was completely blown away Does that away make by it that. then more real? Because it is there. But it, I think that was, that. I've just said to from personally, because yeah. that was that was my my family. So I... I was much more. I would relate to that. Whereas it, in the Rwandan and the and Srebrenica, yes. there wasn't all the records. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Things. There is there is a one wonderful is the wrong word to use, but there is an amazing cabinet there in which, in the middle of it, there's a suitcase with a little label on it, and mm. which gives the name in his own handwriting of Franz Kafka. Yes, and you realise that they've made an effort of keeping Franz Kafka's case. And the label saying it belonged to him. That's the thing. That's the most extraordinary this is thing. What, this is what they wanted it. to do in Prague, wasn't it? They wanted to keep all the synagogues exactly as they were and make them into museums to a forgotten people. Oh, or I'm lost glad people. you reminded me of that because in Prague, in fact, that is the most frightening thing that they keep. They even kept the synagogue yeah. to show the world of the people they hoped they could destroy. Would be no longer around. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if I can pick up the point that you made right at the beginning, Clive, about the number of non-Jews that go to see these places. I was actually very ashamed of myself. Some years ago, I met another journalist, non-Jewish journalist from a bridal magazine, and she told me that she and her husband had just visited Dachau, and I'm ashamed to report that my immediate response was, why? And she said, because we are moral human beings and it is incumbent upon us to go and see a place like that and bear witness. And I thought, that's a marvellous, marvellous response. I had assumed wrongly that there was no incentive on the part of non-Jewish people to go and see these places. She set me right and I think that that is a much more widely and um, much more pervasive train of thought than we even give credit for among the wider population that they feel that there is a moral imperative upon them to go and see what we think of as our holocaust. Yeah that's a very good point but of course one wonders why Doing that, people, there are many, many, many thousands, if not millions of people doing that, non-Jewish people. Why is it then that Holocausts keep on happening? That's an unanswerable question. It's the conundrum of inhumanity. I don't know. Uh, yes. History repeating itself, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and as it always does, doesn't it? No, it has done. It. So it's a, it's a very gloomy outlook then. What you're saying is that although people go to see how disgusting the Holocaust was and how awful other Holocausts were, nothing is going to stop them. Is there nothing th that can stop them? I think them? the human being has short memory if they're not directly involved in it. I mean, these people that are going along were not directly involved in the Holocaust. Presumably they weren't directly involved in Srebrenica or Rwanda or all these other places. Or Syria. Or, or Syria. They're not directly involved and they go along just to, to learn about it. Or do they go along because, because of some sick feeling? I don't know. Well, maybe, actually, now that you say that, maybe there will come a time when people will go, please, God, it will be sooner rather than later. There'll be a time when you can go back to Syria to go to that... Well, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of that 
fabulous city which was destroyed of all the famous ancient parts. Mm. Maybe people can go and see that one day and say how ghastly that was in the same way that Auschwitz is thought today. Maybe. Maybe people that, were, that are directly involved in it yes. now will go yes. back and see. Perhaps. Yes, they are, but they are also recreating all of these things virtually. So you can have the, the virtual goggles. Mm. They, they are recreating the statues and mosaics and things that were destroyed. And you can actually recreate them um, and see them. I think that will be an amazing experience. And and if all of these all of these terrible genocides are recreated created somehow with artificial intelligence, with virtual reality, yeah. well, I think that's a point at which at which we can leave it. And I I hope that as many people as possible do go and visit Auschwitz and all the other places to see the terrible things that can happen. My thanks to our guests, actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and journalist Jenny Fraser. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from Golders Green United Synagogue. Vayigash is a real anomaly because it begins in the middle of a story. If you've been following what's happened so far, Joseph and his brothers have clashed Joseph has framed his brother, Benjamin, and the brothers, including Benjamin, have slunk back to Egypt to face the music because Benjamin is believed to have stolen Joseph's special goblet. Our reading begins, Vaigash elav Yehuda, Yehuda, who, Yehuda, Judah, who is the leader of the brothers, approaches Joseph. But it seems to start in the middle of the story. It could be that this is the very first cliffhanger in history. You remember those TV shows where just as the exciting bit's about to happen, the music plays and it keeps you hanging on so you'll tune in next week. Well, actually, that's a bit what's happening here. The story leaves the audience excited. Benjamin, what will happen to him? And then we have to wait to the new reading to find out. But there's more because Vayigash, the word means to approach or to connect. Until now, the story has been about disconnection, fragmentation, argument, what Jews called a good broigus, a good disagreement amongst the family. But now it's a moment of reconciliation. And the entire theme of our parsha, of our reading, is about reconciliation, about Joseph reconciling with his brother Benjamin, with his other brothers, about the brothers coming to terms with what they did when they sold him, and eventually with Joseph reconciling with his long-lost father, Jacob. The story is one of hope. Because even when there's been fragmentation or disagreement, sometimes of the most disastrous kind, it's always possible to reconcile. It's always possible to think in a new framework. And that's why perhaps the two stories are separated, not really to create a cliffhanger, but to separate the mindset of fragmentation from the mindset of reconciliation. Thank you very much to Rabbi Harvey Belofsky there from Golders Green United Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Paul Charney and Hannah Weisfeld, Judah Passau, Johnny Benjamin. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Tony Honigberg and Jenny Fraser. And of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg.
You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.